We'll be reading from Acts chapter 20 from verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that you may speak to us now from it. Help us to be instructed and edified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The events in our passage this morning took place in the port city of Troas. That's on the, uh, the coast of the Aegean Sea in what's now modern-day Turkey. Luke and Paul had come across from Macedonia in the northwest and they were met at Troas by seven representatives of the different churches in the area. And of course they met with the church of Troas. Paul was in a bit of a hurry to get to Jerusalem, but they did stay the whole week in Troas. And this was their last day, Sunday, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. The entire local church had gathered in the evening for a, for a meal and probably to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it must have been a fairly large room on the third story of someone's house. And Paul prolonged his sermon until midnight. And in the church there was a young lad, probably 10 to 15 years old, and he was sitting on the windowsill listening to Paul. Eventually he fell asleep. Then he fell backwards, three stories down to his death. Paul went downstairs and he dropped down onto the boy, took him in his arms. And then he said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And it seems then that Paul just went back upstairs and they, they did the Lord's Supper and they spoke, or they, they talked until dawn. And then as a footnote to the story, we're told, they took, the way, they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This raises some questions. Uh, firstly, was the boy really dead? This is a reasonable question because uh, even Paul's words could be interpreted that maybe the boy didn't die, but he was um, unconscious. One problem with that view is that Luke, who wrote this account, was actually there on this night, and Luke was a doctor. We also know from the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts that Luke was uh, really particular about the details. So Luke was present and he had the skills to determine if someone was really dead or not. And he writes that Eutychus was taken up dead. And he didn't say taken up as though dead, he said taken up dead. It shows that he was indeed quite dead. Is there another? Ah. Secondly, the question is, was it Paul or was it God who raised Eutychus? Paul's obviously involved here. He's the uh, one who grabbed him in his arms, as, as he is with all his other miracles. 
but it was the power of God at work whenever Paul or any of the other apostles performed a miracle. And this, this fact is recorded for us in Acts a couple of places. As an example, in the last chapter, uh, 19, verse 11, it says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So God raised Eutychus from the dead by the hands of Paul. The next question is why? If you were here last week, you'd have heard John preach on 1 Kings 17. In this chapter, the prophet Elijah raised the only son of the widow of Zarephath after he had died. And in many ways, these two accounts are really similar. There's a boy who dies. There's a man of God who comes, embraces the child, raises him from the dead. But the contexts of these stories are very different. Last week, we were, we were instructed that the people of Israel had turned from Jehovah God to the Baals, the idols of the pagans. And over several years, God was using Elijah to show that he, Jehovah, is the giver of life and the taker of life. God demonstrated this using Elijah as his spokesman and representative. So first, he prophesied that the drought would come, and then the drought came. And God fed Elijah by the deliveries of food by the ravens. And then uh, Elijah went and told a widow that was about to die of starvation that her supply of flour and a supply of oil would not run out. And so, again, God was uh, providing life miraculously for Elijah and for the widow and for the son. And then the widow's son died. And Elijah prayed to God, lay down on the child, and the boy came back to life. So we see God's purpose there in Elijah raising that widow's son was to show that, um, or to give further evidence, that he's the giver of life and the withholder of life. And of course that Elijah was his true prophet and spoke the words of God. But here in Troas, the context is really different. This is a church service. These people know that Jehovah is the giver of life. But it's a very similar miracle. So why and and. What do we get from this story that we can apply to our lives today? So let's talk a little bit about the context of this evening in Troas. Paul's first two missionary journeys when he uh, travelled through the Roman world were almost entirely evangelistic. In each new city, he'd go to the Jews and tell them about Jesus, and then he'd go to the non-Jews, tell them about Jesus. He would stay a while. All the believers would form into a church. He'd appoint elders and then he'd move on. This last leg of his final trip was quite different. Paul was strengthening and encouraging the existing churches because he didn't expect to see any of these people again. Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. He was expecting to be imprisoned and then sent to Rome. He was saying goodbye. This was a farewell tour. So in the last chapter, if you still have your Bibles open, chapter 19, verse 21... We read, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And then in chapter 20, read the first two verses. After the uproar ceased, this is still in Ephesus, the last place, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. He's travelling through, he's encouraging the churches. Now nothing's recorded about what 
Paul preached about for so long. He preached till midnight, but what was he talking about? We do have a record, however, of what he said to the elders of the church of Ephesus about a week later. So after this event in Troas, he travelled down and then caught up with the elders at Ephesus. And we've got his speech to them in uh, Acts 20 from verses 18 to 35. But I'd like to just focus on a couple of verses from verse 22, 22 to 25. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. This is obviously Paul speaking to the elders. I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He tells them, I know that I will not see your face again. And then at the end of this time, their farewell is really quite uh, emotional. It's in verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And then again later on this trip, as he gets much closer to Jerusalem at Caesarea, uh, Paul's friends are actually pleading with him, do not go to Jerusalem. We read in the next chapter 21, verses uh, 12 and 13, when he heard this, so when Paul heard them you know, trying to stop him, sorry, when they heard uh, another prophecy that Paul was going to be imprisoned, we, that's Luke and the people there, urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. So I've looked at all these passages because although we don't know what uh, Paul was telling them all night in um, Troas, we can be pretty sure that these recurring themes must have been part of what he was speaking to them about. Going to Jerusalem, imprisonment, willingness to die, I will never see you again, this type of a, a message. Paul is saying goodbye. And of course he would have been saying many things to the church of Troas specifically exhortations, encouragements that are just for them. So although Paul is trying to encourage the church, his message must have been received with a lot of sorrow. And this sorrowful message is the backdrop now to this event. Now this this accident must have come as a terrible shock to those present. We read the stories in the Bible and we have a bit of a distance between us and them. It was such a long time ago. We're very familiar with the story. We know how it ends. But can you actually imagine what this was like? Can you imagine if in our church here today, one of the, one of the boys in the youth group suddenly had an accident and died right now? Maybe they touched a faulty electrical appliance or something like that. That's it, they're gone. Our reaction wouldn't be any different to the church in Troas 2,000 years ago. They didn't love their kids any less than we do. So then in one evening now they've lost Paul and they've lost Eutychus. And so to me one of the most likely reasons that God used Paul to raise Eutychus 
was that in his mercy and his compassion, he was moved to comfort them. And I get this from the only comment we have about this event in this passage, which is that little footnote in verse 12 of chapter 20. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Now, not a little comforted, not a little means a lot. The NIV just says greatly comforted. We can relate to this type of phrase. I'm not bad. Fuel's not cheap. You're not wrong. And Luke's no stranger to this way of speaking. In the previous chapter, in verse 23, uh, back in Ephesus, he said, About this time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is just is Christianity. No little disturbance. Then he tells the story and we find out that basically the whole city is having a riot. That's no little disturbance. So they were not a little comforted. They were greatly comforted. It, was, it brought great comfort to the church. So God brought Eutychus back to life through Paul. And we're told that one of the consequences was that he provided great comfort to the church. I believe that providing comfort, that comfort, was surely one of God's central purposes in doing this. But what about today? God is the same yesterday, today and forever. God never changes. But God does work in different ways through history. And during this apostolic time, as the gospel was spreading through the Roman world, it was God's pleasure to accompany the work with great signs and wonders like this. We haven't seen the risen Jesus. We haven't seen the miracles of Paul and Peter and the other apostles. That doesn't make our faith inferior. When Thomas finally saw the wounds of Jesus and touched them after he had risen, he believed. And Jesus said to them, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So we haven't seen, but we can believe, and we do believe. And though we don't see God working through the apostles... We do see him working in many other ways in the world and in our lives and in the lives of others. How God remains all-powerful and he's a loving Heavenly Father. And one of the ways that he works today is through prayer. He hears our prayers and he answers our prayers. Sometimes he answers prayers in a way that just amazes you and fills you with wonder. He can answer prayer sometimes in such an inexplicable way that you can only describe it as a miracle. In Ephesians 3, so Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul describes God as him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Notice in that phrase that God's power is measured against the context of our requests. Not only can God do far more than we ask, he can do far more than we even can imagine or dare to imagine and not even ask. Jesus Christ encouraged us in his teaching and in the parables and in his example. He encouraged us to pray. Uh, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians that they should pray without ceasing. We should be continually bringing our requests to our Heavenly Father who hears us, who loves us, and who's able to do more than we can even ask or more than we can even think. We all know this is true, but do we really believe it? Because I think if we really believed it, we would be praying so much more. But did you ever, back to this story, did you ever think that God could have just prevented Eutychus from falling out the window or falling asleep? 
Or maybe he could have made him just fall forwards into the room and looked silly and everyone laughed. and That was it. God could have chosen to do that. He could have worked that way. We ask God for his protection. We ask him for safety and for blessing. And so what terrible things has God prevented in our own lives? How many times has he saved our children from death or touched an unseen cancer or moved the heart of someone that was intent on doing you harm? We don't know. We can't know. But I believe that we should be more thankful to God for the terrible things that have not happened in our lives. Sometimes God works in that way. So God could have stopped Eutychus from falling and that type of invisible miracle would have uh, prevented a lot of shock and grief. But the combination of Eutychus falling and dying and then being restored back to life brought even more comfort to the church. Not only was Eutychus restored, but the church had a fresh sign that God loved them and cared for them. There was a fresh stamp of approval from God on Paul the Apostle and how legitimate he was and the legitimacy of the message of the gospel that he'd brought to them and that they believed. They had an event that they would never forget that they could look back on in the darker days ahead. They could look back on this day many years in the future and it would revive their faith in a good God. God's way of working in this instance precisely matched the needs of that church in Troas. In the same way, sometimes God's way of working in us, he brings us trials and difficulties and then we pray and then he hears and answers our prayer and brings us to a greater and a stronger place than we were before. But sometimes God brings us trials and we pray and there's no answer, there's no rescue, there's no comfort. This is not what happened at Troas, but it might have happened to you and it may still happen one day to you or, or to me. God doesn't always bring people back to life. You shouldn't get the idea from this passage that for a believer, every tragedy uh, has a happy ending. So let's turn briefly to Romans chapter 8. I'd like to read Romans 8 verses 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. For us that love God and we've been called according to his purpose, God works all things together for our good. All things means all things. It means the sudden death of a loved one. It means a devastating medical diagnosis. It means a war. It means this, uh, this current uh, pandemic, the complications of the government response. All things is all things. And only very rarely does God work all things together for good by means of a, a miracle that suddenly reverses the bad thing that just happened. It can be years or decades before that good that God intended can be seen and understood. And sometimes we don't even see it or understand it within our lifetime. So let's briefly consider what the good is. God is working all things together, all things for our good. What's the good that he's working all things towards? That was actually explained in verse 29. It says for, for means because, because those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son 
Our greatest good is that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God works all things in our lives to make us more like Jesus. Romans 8 tells us more about this process. We're to put, uh, through the Spirit, we're to put sin to death. We're to uh, stop sinning through the power of God in us. We're to stop sinning, even to stop our sinful desires, to kill them. We have to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We have to be prepared to suffer with Christ. This all sounds very difficult because it can only be done in the power that God provides. You may also wonder if, do our prayers sometimes go unanswered for years because of a lack of faith? Is that maybe what's happening? Is it a lack of faith? I don't think so. Firstly, if you lack faith, then how is it that you're still praying? Prayer is a demonstration of faith. And secondly, as an example, this same Paul who raised Eutychus from the dead wasn't able to heal his own physical ailment that was tormenting him. He pleaded with the Lord three times. and God said no. And why did he say no? We're told. It was to keep Paul from becoming conceited and to make him rely on God's grace. That is, God was working this together for God's good by conforming him to the image of Christ. This thorn in the flesh, this physical ailment, made Paul more like Christ by stopping him from becoming conceited and making him remain reliant on God. So as I conclude, I'd like to summarise what we've covered. The, t- the church in Troas would have had some uh, sorrowful news as they heard from their founding father Paul that they would never see him again and that he was going to suffer many things and probably go on to die. And our Heavenly Father used a series of amazing events to bring comfort to his church, to remind them of his love and mercy and his providential care. In the same way God cares for us, and he is merciful and provides for us according to our needs. But we must remember that the way that God works does not always follow this pattern of events that we saw at Troas. Indeed, he rarely works that way. Sometimes God protects us, and is merciful to us in the things that he prevents from happening. Sometimes God mercifully answers our prayers in astounding ways. And it reassures us of his love and it makes us glorify his name. But sometimes God is using events, circumstances, suffering for our good to make us more like Christ. So whatever happens in all circumstances, we must trust and depend on our Heavenly Father who loves us more than we can love ourselves. We must pray your will be done and mean it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and the amazing things that you did through him and for Luke, that he could uh, accompany Paul and, and document all these things for our edification. Help us, Lord, to trust you, to trust you in all things, to trust you with the the greatest desires and wants and needs that we have and to come to you in prayer and then to accept the answer that you bring. We pray that you do keep your promise and work all things in our lives together for our good to conform us to the image of Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.